And I want to talk a little bit about uh, those who build foundations. Those who invest in a part of a building that is very often unseen. Those who build foundations. I think it's relevant to Grandparents' Day and it's relevant to 100 Years of Apostolic Truth. Foundation building is difficult. Prior to some of the modern conveniences of construction, it was treacherous. It was dangerous. You're moving earth, and and it's possible that that earth could collapse onto you. And so foundation building is treacherous. But in all the years of human construction, the basic principles of building a foundation have remained unchanged. The basic principles of digging deep into the earth to build a structure up so that it can be supported from its foundation, that concept hasn't changed. And so Jesus used this earthly concept to talk about a kingdom principle in Matthew chapter 7. And you can remain seated. We're just going to read Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. And Jesus is talking to to a group of people, he said, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who builds his house on a rock. The rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew, that all these storms came against this construction that he had built on a sure foundation. these, These elements of weather beat on that house and it fell not for it was founded upon a rock. The reason this house did not fall was because it it was founded upon a solid and sure foundation. Verse 26 says, Everyone that hears these sayings of mine and doesn't do them shall be likened to a foolish man who builds his house upon sand. And the rain descends... Same elements of the earth of the, of the weather come, the rain descends, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. How many of you have ever built a sandcastle? How many of you have ever tried to build your own house out of sand? No. We know that sand is unstable. We know that sand is unstable. It's not going to stand the test of time. And so when you try to build a house upon sand, you are guaranteeing that it will collapse with the weather. And Jesus is using this analogy, this parable, to teach the crowd. And I think sometimes when we look back, we think, well, construction back in those days wasn't all that you know, secure or great or, you know, we've made all these technological advancements and the arrogance of our current time makes us dismiss the amazing things that they were able to do in their time. The Colosseum was built in Jesus' time or around that time. The temple in Jerusalem, whose walls are still standing today, was built prior to Jesus' time. If you look through, you guys know I'm a history nerd. If you look through... Uh, the, the channels of history, you will see construction that was done that will blow your mind. I went to an exhibit one time about the city of Ur, where Abraham was originally from. Did you know that they had air conditioning? In Ur, the oldest known city of that region? Ur. 
they had air, they, they had a way to, ch- to channel cold water underneath the floor. They had radiant cooling and radiant heat from below. They were pretty smart. And so we can't dismiss the work that was done back in those days. And of course, since, since Jesus' time, human means for construction have continued to advance. And so I'll tell you a story about a man in the 12th century in the 1100s who decided he was going to build a bell tower to complement the church that had been built in his area. And he started on this on August 9th of 1172. He had amassed several of the necessary components to start building, and he had some uh, uh, workmen who were helping craftsmen and carpenters and stonemasons and sculptors, and uh, they, they began, you know, from the ground up like you do, the foundation had to be set, and the architect had designed it in a way that he thought would be perfect. And so by eleven seven year the year 1176, they had completed the second of what would be eight stories of this building. And in that second story building, they started realizing some things. If a toolsman dropped his tool, it would roll to the other side of the room. And when the craftsmen got down off their ladder, they felt just a little bit pulled in one direction. Why? Because the building has started to lean. We now know this tower as the leaning tower of Pisa. The leaning tower of Pisa. Now, that was not its original name. When the architect designed it, he didn't write the leaning tower of Pisa at the top of his papyrus or paper or whatever he was writing on. It was never intended to be known by this defect. But that's how we know it today, the Leaning Tower of Pisa. It's eight stories tall. It was completed in the 1400s. And so when this architect began his construction, he knew he was building a generational building. It was going to take generations to pull off his vision and make it a reality. And yet he began. Now, he only built a three-foot foundation for a building that would rise 186 feet in the air. Today's architects would tell you that that is unreasonable. (laughs) If you're going to go 186 feet in the air, you've got to go a lot deeper than just three feet with your foundation. On top of the shallow foundation that he built, it was shifting sand. It was a high water density in that soil underneath the, the, the tower. And so the more weight that got put on it, the more, the more of the vision that, beca- that came into fruition, the more weight of that building, the more it would lean in the direction of the soft spot in the earth. This is exactly what Jesus was talking about. When we build on unstable footing, things will get a little wonky. And it'll start to lean. And so in the 1400s, when this building was finished and the eighth story was built, it was leaning to such a degree that they started trying to figure out how to fix it, how to realign this foundation. You know, once the building is built, it's really hard to fix the foundation. The foundation builders had done an insufficient job, and so... All future generations are now having to prop up 
and figure out ways to make this tower stand. I mean, it's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of effort. It's a lot of craftsmanship. It's beautiful if you see it. They don't want to lose the value of it, but it takes every subsequent generation strength and resources and ingenuity to try to prop up what was not done right from the beginning. This is the danger of building on an uncertain foundation. Now, in, back in 1990, they closed the tower. Uh, they had done two decades of stabilization studies. They closed the tower. They, they pulled the bell. Remember, this is built to be a bell tower. That's the purpose of the tower, to have bells hanging in these top stories. They had beautiful bells made that represented all seven notes. Uh, there were really eight an octave, but you know, two are the same. So they, they put in seven notes. Uh, of bells, and they ended up having to remove the bells because of the weight that they were adding to the building. The very purpose of the building was negated until they could fix the, um, the, the, the lean or the, the degrees by which it was tilting. So the bells were removed to relieve some weight. Cables were cinched around the third level and anchored several hundred meters or yards away. Apartments and houses that were in the path of the potential fall of the building were, were vacated. This is the impact of one man's decision to dig a little too shallow in the earth. People had to move out of their homes because it was dangerous for them to live there. And they eventually ended up removing 70 metric tons of earth from the side of the building that was, that, that was higher in order to try to stabilize it. And it, it, it ended up being instead of five degrees of leaning, five and a half degrees, now it leans almost four, 3.97 degrees. Still leans. I think they did that on purpose, Pastor, because they want people to come see it. Tourist attraction. Absolutely. They reopened it to the public as the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Uh, I don't think the locals call it that, but we sure do. On December 15th, 2001. Can you imagine? What would have happened? I mean, would we even know that this tower exists if it had been built correctly? I don't know as an American if I would. I've never been to Italy. I've never walked those steps, which, by the way, there are a different number of steps on each side of the building. One side has 296 steps, and the other side has 294 steps because it's a little wonky. And so Jesus instructs his people to build, make sure before you ever get started that you've got a sure foundation. Now, I look around this room, and there are people who have done the work correctly. In fact, we can look around our physical world. There are many, many buildings that are built correctly that have amazing impact uh, in their skyline. Or we think about the Empire State Building. They, they drilled down into bedrock to anchor that building. They had to. Why? Because it was going to go so high. The, the more impact you want the building to have, the deeper you have to go. So many architects have gotten it correct. 
Many architects have effectively directed their construction crews to craft foundations that were more than adequate for the structures they were trying to build. And as I look around, I see people who have built well on a sure foundation. Like Jesus said, you founded your lives on the truth of the word of God, on faith in Jesus and obedience to his word. That's the surest foundation that we have in this world. And that's what he's called us to do. Paul told the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 3.11, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. There's no other foundation. If we're not building our lives on the faith in Christ and the obedience to his word, we're not building on anything. There is no other foundation. There's nothing else that I can stand on and know that it's not going anywhere. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's never going to move on me. He's never going to go away from me. He's never going to leave me. He is the only true foundation, and his truth will help me build a life that is sustainable and impactful in my world. Amen. What is built on Christ and on obedience to Christ will stand for eternity. I am the beneficiary personally. Like Pastor said, we we are beneficiaries of the people's decisions who precede us. My grandparents left a legacy. You are leaving legacies for your grandkids, for your kids, for yourselves building a legacy. What that legacy looks like is your choice. My grandparents made some choices, and so if you will indulge me, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my maternal grandparents, my mom's parents, and if you, Sister Sister Ruth, if you're able to put that picture up, this, these are, these are my beautiful grandparents, Uh, Clyde Raymond and Mabel Irene, and this was their wedding picture. Mabel Irene Brown was a beautiful, blue-eyed, dark-haired girl who grew up. uh, She was originally from Iowa, and then they moved to southern Illinois. She was born in 1915 as the second of seven children. It's a lot of kids. Amen. But just hold on, because it gets better. Uh, She was born into a very hard-working life. Her family was not wealthy, far from it. They were uh, uh, trying to eke a living out of the garden in the backyard, as well as her father working as as uh, working some in the coal mines. When her dad wasn't working, he was drinking. He was a verbally abusive drunk, and so you can imagine what her home life was. She was investing in her younger siblings and trying to be a second mom to all these kids that were coming up after her and also trying to fend off her dad from her mom, and and there was a lot going on in their home. That was Mabel. Clyde Raymond Brandon, who went by Pat, and there's a story behind that, but I don't have time to tell it. Pat came from a similar background. He was the eighth of 12 children born to his parents in southern Illinois, and his mom was a very hard-working, hard-working woman. His dad was also a drunk. And by all accounts, he was a no-account. And he was a vulgar man. And he often got into physical fights in bars, and his sons would have to go and pull him out of the bar. 
He was very base in his uh, attentions towards ladies. He, he abused my great-grandmother. Uh, he, he abused my uh, uh, great-great-aunts, uh, my, my, my grandfather's sisters. And my grandfather and his brothers would have to defend their sisters and later their own wives from my great-grandfather's sexual advances. He was not a good man. He was controlled by alcohol and driven to drink. So alcoholism is prevalent in both of my grandparents' families. When Pat was nine, his family was unable to live without additional income, and so several of the boys dropped out of school and became coal miners to add additional income, and so Grandpa was a fourth-grade dropout. He never made it back to the schoolhouse, and he spent the rest of his working life underground for 10 to 12 hours a day, doing whatever job they'd let him do from his young age forward. But unlike his father, Pat was a very hard worker, and he was respected by his peers. Uh, when Pat was in his late teens, uh, and I think, I think I may have skipped this. Let's go back to my grandma. Grandma was 15 when someone invited her to a little Pentecostal church in Heron. And it was there that my grandmother repented of her sins and was baptized in Jesus' name and was filled with the beautiful spirit of God and spoke in other tongues like the Bible says you should when you receive the Holy Ghost. And she continued to be faithful to that little church despite her home life, as faithful as she could be. Every time she could get out of the house on a church day, she went to church. And she connected as a first-generation apostolic without anybody else in her church or in her family joining her. Pat, when he was in his late teens, he and some other boys headed down to the Pentecostal church. And they were not going in faith. They were going to go and stand outside the open windows and make fun of the people doing crazy things inside that Pentecostal church. Sometimes they'd see people run the, run the aisles or in those days run on the pews and fall on the floor and speak in tongues. and They went to make fun of all of that. And so as they're standing outside the church, looking in and laughing and jeering, my grandpa sees a beautiful blue-eyed girl with her hands raised and tears flowing down her face as the Holy Ghost was moving. And he was converted to my grandma. It took him a little more time to be converted to Jesus, but he too, he repented of his sins and he brought his heart to Jesus. And he was baptized in Jesus' name, and the Lord filled him with the Holy Ghost, which is the overcoming power of God to live a victorious life on this earth and in the next one. Let's go to the next picture. This couple continued faithfully. This is around their 30th or 35th anniversary in the 60s. And we'll go to the next one. This is their 50th wedding anniversary. 
And they were married for nine more years until my grandmother passed away in 1994. My grandfather followed her in 1998. And I look back at this beautiful couple, and I'm thankful that they were foundation builders. That they made choices that changed, literally changed the course and direction of my life. They were cycle breakers. They laid their lives down before the Lord. And when they made that decision, things started to change in their family. They had lived through abuse of every kind. They had seen the, 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 the impact of alcoholism on their families. Alcohol and anger and abuse had reigned in their homes. But for both of them. And they made a different decision. They laid everything that they had on the altar. And they said, God, I don't know if you can use me, but if you can, I'm here to be used by you. I don't, I don't need anything from my past. I'm bringing everything from my future, my present and my future forward, and I'm giving it to you. I, live, I give myself as a living sacrifice to you, Jesus. And things started to change. Statisticians would tell you that because of my great, great, I'm sorry, yeah, my, my great grandfather's addictions, both my grandma and my grandpa were four times more likely than their peers to experience alcohol, alcoholism, alcohol substance abuse themselves. Four times more likely. And you can see that play out through every generation of my family. I'm, uh, back when I was doing my, my work in counseling, I mapped my family history of alcoholism. It's in every generation. Addiction is in every generation of my family. But if you look at Pat and Mabel Brandon's children, not one child, not one grandchild, not one great-grandchild deals with addiction. And it's because I had grandparents who knelt at an altar and there was deliverance that night from a generational curse. There is nothing that God cannot deliver you from. And the moment that a, a foundation builder steps forward and says, I'm not building like the previous generation. I'm not going to build my home like my mama built it or like my daddy built it. I'm going to build a house that's different. As soon as that foundation builder steps up, God breaks things that have been haunting your family for generations. You're called to be a foundation builder, not just because of who you are, but who your children will be and who your grandchildren will be. God is called calling you today. What are you going to build that foundation on? Are you going to build it on my truth or are you going to build it on the world and everything that's out there? It's the basic decision. What you get right with God can set your whole family right with God. Generation to generation to generation. He keeps mercy for the obedient unto a thousand generations. I stand on a foundation of mercy today. And my grandparents' life didn't automatically become perfect because they found Jesus. They were married in 1935, and they worked hard, and they began a little family. In 1936, baby Clyde Eugene was born. 
to them and they enjoyed all of his first, his first smiles and his first giggles and his first words and his first steps. And then before he turned to, he, he was eating a piece of a walnut and he choked to death. This was their first little baby. And my grandma never really forgave herself for that. My grandfather struggled for many, many years to forgive God for that. And five more children would be born to my grandparents between 1939 and 1950, with my mom being the youngest. They were born in lean years in terms of the family economy. You don't make a lot of money as a, as a coal miner. And what you do make, they try to get you to spend at the company store. So you're always in debt to the company that you work for. So there were some lean years and a lot of hard work and trying to figure out how to parent as a first-generation apostolic with a history of abuse in your life. How do you overcome the things that mom and dad used to do to get you to obey? What do you do to help your next generation? It's a struggle. And, it's a, and the struggle's real to break a cycle. But my, even when my grandpa struggled in his faith, my grandma never stopped going to that little Pentecostal church on West Monroe Street in Heron, Illinois. Every Sunday, every Wednesday, every Sunday, every Wednesday, Saturdays for chicken and dumpling dinners. Mm. Ain't nobody make chicken and dumplings like my grandma. I'm sorry for, to all the rest of you, but she was, she was the goat greatest of all time. Not perfect, but faithful. And eventually her youngest child, my mom, would repent of her sins and be baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the Holy Ghost as a little girl. And she would serve later as the youth leader of that church. Wasn't such a little church anymore. And one day a man named Terry Griffith came in and sat on the front row and he had come with a friend, Marvin Walker. And my mom was the youth leader who taught Terry Griffith his, Bible, his first Bible study and led him to pray through to the Holy Ghost. And now Terry Griffith pastors the, the little Pentecostal church on West Monroe Street in Heron, Illinois. And his two boys, see, Terry Griffith is a first-generation first foundation builder. And he and his wife, Mona, have two boys. And their boys are helping to lead the church there. And they now have children. And the ripple effect of my grandma's decision to go to a little Pentecostal church and lay her life down before the Lord just continues to roll on. My grandma died in 1994 when I was 15. My mom's the only one of her five children who stayed in the Pentecostal way her entire life. Both my older aunt and uncle did and later in life get baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the Holy Ghost, and they've gone on to their reward. But my grandma did live to see her daughter serve in ministry and graduate from Bible college and marry a preacher. And together, my parents founded and pastored a church in Cape Coral, Florida that's just celebrating their 30th anniversary coming up soon. And what joy that gave my grandma to see that that part of their lives and know that her investment in truth was continuing, that that foundation was being built on. And 
Grandma never got to see what God has done with my brother and me as adults, but she knew we were filled with the Holy Ghost at the age of six, both of us. And I know she prayed for us. And so when I was deputizing, right before I went to Quebec, I got to preach at that little Pentecostal church, the West Monroe Apostolic Church in Heron, Illinois, and I, I still remember. What a powerful anointing fell that night because of my grandma's prayers, because my grandparents built a foundation. And I remember that night my mom told me as I was preaching and praying with people and ministering like we do, she had a vision of my grandma passing a mantle first to her and then to me. And the power of the anointing moving from the foundation builder generation to generation. And I watch as my brother's four children are coming up now in the faith. And it's moving to another generation. Grandparents, you're leaving a legacy. And you may never know what God's going to do with it. But as the foundation builder, you have the privilege to make sure it's strong and solid and built on that stone of foundation, the stone of the truth of the word of God, that bedrock. Let's all stand. It's a beautiful heritage that my grandmother and my grandparents began for our family. And I'm so thankful that she decided in 1930, 1930, 92 years ago, to go into a little Pentecostal church in Heron and give her broken heart and her broken life to Jesus. She was so hurting at that time because of all that she had suffered and all that she had seen. And at the young age of 15, she had seen a lot. She didn't live a perfect life. But, Pastor, she made the perfect decision for imperfect people. She gave her life and her heart to Jesus. Today, whether you're a grandparent or or not, you are building something. You're constructing something. And you're impacting someone with what you're building. So have you taken stock of the foundation where you're building? Are you noticing that things might be leaning in a perilous direction? Maybe things aren't as solid as they could be in your life. Maybe the foundation that you've chosen to build on is actually sand. And you never realized it before. I'm telling you, It's your opportunity to build a new foundation on the truth of God's word. On faith in Jesus Christ and understanding that he loves you and he wants what's best for you. And he wants to break every chain that the enemy has tried to put on your life so that future generations you and future generations can benefit. If he can do it for my family, I'm telling you, he can do it for you. 
There's nothing that binds you or your family that Jesus cannot destroy in one simple sweep of his hand as deliverance comes and it's immediate and he fills you with the Holy Ghost. There is nothing that he cannot change when you come with the spirit of repentance that says, God, I know I haven't done everything right. I'm sorry for the wrong thing that I've done, and I want to live in the right direction. I'm turning my life around, God. That's what repentance is. I'm turning to you, Jesus. And it's that easy. You start walking in the direction of Jesus, and you start obeying his word, and God will change your life. There are testimonies in this room that if you knew their backstory, they could tell you exactly what I just did. It doesn't matter what abuse you come from. It doesn't matter what addiction you come from. It doesn't matter what background you come from. God can change your life and set you on a firm foundation. If you believe what I just said, this altar is open to you. There's nothing magic about this space up front, but we invite you to come as a testament of your faith. God, I believe you can and I believe you will. Take whatever I have to give, little though it may be, Jesus. I believe you're going to take this offering and make something beautiful out of it. Church, will you pray right now? I believe God's doing a work all across this sanctuary. If you need to solidify some things, anchor some things, this is your opportunity. Jesus, we need you. I believe in you, Jesus, and I believe in your life-changing power. I've seen it happen in my life. I've seen it happen in my family's life. I've seen deliverance take place, and so I pray for deliverance right now in the name of Jesus. I rebuke every spirit of addiction. I rebuke every spirit of alcoholism. I rebuke every spirit that would try to entangle people with drugs and things that influence them in the name of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you will bring deliverance to your people. God, that every addiction, God, I pray against the spirit of pornography in the name of Jesus Christ, that there would be deliverance and chain breaking that happens in this house today. God, I've seen it happen in my family. I want to see it happen in this church. In Jesus' name, would you pray today, saints? Let's go to prayer for these folks that are praying right now. In Jesus' name.